Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource, and just back from a vacation in Alaska, where the glaciers are actually shrinking at a somewhat alarming rate. That is disturbing, Lewis. It's John Fenstrawald, and I'm Editor-at-Large at EdSource, and it's good to have you back. Well, good to be back, John. And talking about being back, uh, school is back in session for actually a number of school districts. And uh, students are going back to school, but a lot of them have on their minds some of the controversies engendered by the Trump administration that's come up over the summer. We'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about some criticism of California's plan under the Every Student Succeeds Act that it's submitting to the Trump administration. And we'll also be talking with Teresa Harrington about efforts to get bilingual teachers up to speed, teachers who already speak Spanish but are not actually teaching bilingual classes. Good. First, Lewis, let's talk about this summer for the Trump presidency You've been looking into how students and teachers might deal with some of the fallout from the president's conduct. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more? Well, this is a pretty tough issue because a lot of issues have come up over the summer that I think are going to be on a lot of children's minds. One of the issues that's come up is this whole threat of a nuclear conflict with North Korea. You're using air quotes, by the way, when you did that, for (laughs) those of you who couldn't see it. But the fire and fury threats of the president. Another issue that's surfaced over the summer is this whole controversy in Charlottesville, the neo-Nazi rallies, and, of course, uh, the president's kind of doubling down on that and uh, talking about how both sides are at fault. And we're in a state where there's great sensitivity to these issues. And uh, particularly in minority communities, this is going to be something that's going to be a topic of some considerable conversation. The whole issue of immigration enforcement is about a million kids. That's one in six kids in California schools have a family member, not necessarily only parents, but some family member could be brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, who are potentially threatened with deportation. Some of them might themselves be threatened with deportation. This is creating a lot of anxiety in immigrant communities. And so the question is, kids are going to be coming to school with a lot of these issues on their minds. And the question is, to what extent should teachers be acknowledging that, surfacing those issues? Because actually, John, there's quite a lot of, I mean, certainly around the whole issue of the threat of deportation, there's some compelling evidence that Kids who are anxious about potential deportation, this affects their mental health and also affects their academic work. Yeah, right, right. So what are teachers supposed to do about this, Lewis? Well, that is a good question. And of course, teachers are not supposed to be taking positions. I think there's been reluctance, understandably, to bring politics into the classroom. So if you are teaching a civics class or a history or social studies class, you actually have a forum to discuss some of these issues and to get students' feelings about what's happening on the national and the political front. Uh, A lot more challenging when it comes to elementary grades, where uh, you may not have that kind of structured 
forum in which to raise difficult issues. So there is an issue about how teachers would go about recognizing or surfacing some of the issues that kids are feeling. Well, there are a couple of things that come to me, Lewis. One is for many of these students who haven't paid attention perhaps to politics from now, they think that this is a norm for presidential behavior. And from that standpoint alone, teachers could use this as a lesson to go back and show, in fact, how other presidents have reacted in terms of reaching out to the public, in terms of crisis, in terms of dealing with diplomacy. My personal opinion, don't want to think that this is the norm for the way presidents have behaved in the past. The other thing, though, it's, it's on an emotional level. The president may say, as he said and repeated, there were, quote, violence on both sides. But for students, particularly in California, who see white supremacists walking in Charlottesville, I think this really is a threatening vision for them. And it really evokes a lot of problems for minority kids who feel that this is a threat to them too. And so how a teacher deals with it on a, an emotional level to discuss, how are you feeling about this? You know, what does this say to you about your role in America? It's important to get this discussed and out there. And, and as we've seen, even within a couple miles of us in Oakland, there have been incidents of uh, swastikas and temples, an incident in Roseville where... Five teenagers were arrested for hate language in middle schools, desecrated the schools. It's emboldening in some respects, some of this bad conduct, and it's disconcerting to students to be seeing this as potentially affecting them as well. But, and I just want to, you know, it's not just minority students. I think any sort of politically aware students, particularly in more progressive communities, are going to be upset about this. So I think this right. is something that a lot of kids are going to be affected by. And, you know, just this weekend, the time we're, this this podcast will be aired, uh, there's a number of rallies planned around the state. And, uh, and so communities are trying to decide what to do about that and to try to avoid conflict. So this is something that uh, affects a lot of a lot of people. But I will say one of the other challenges is that teachers themselves are likely to have strong feelings about this themselves. And so that's an issue. I mean, teachers are human beings. And so the notion that they would be able to just divorce their personal feelings from the discussion is going to be challenging. At the same time, this, of course, is the responsibility of a teacher not to be forcing their particular points of view on the views of the kids. And actually, uh, there's evidence that this is counterproductive. If kids come to school with beliefs, which are very, probably deeply rooted in their parents, in their, in their families, in their communities, and the teacher tries to kind of talk them out of it or is too assertive in saying that's not the right point of view, it can really backfire. Difficult, difficult issues. And I think one one thing that uh, talking with Judy Pace, who's and uh, teaches teacher education classes and really has studied this issue at uh, University of San Francisco, she says, you know, if you're not sure how to approach this as a teacher, talk to the administration or send a note to the parents saying we want to raise these issues. So nobody is blindsided because you don't want to put anybody's job at at risk. Uh, at the same time, we know this is something that many kids are concerned about. And just last last point on this, the new communications age makes it very difficult to isolate kids or for kids to isolate themselves. They're on social media, they're looking at Instagram, Snapchat, they're looking on YouTube, they got the John Oliver monologues, uh, Trevor Noah, 
and uh, they're hearing things. We shouldn't be under any illusions that children are not following this or not at least aware of a lot of the controversies. Well, speaking of controversies, although at a much lesser level. Unless uh, ESSA boils your blood, yes, that's right. <laughs> well, starting with the acronym, that's not going to involve that many people, but ESSA is the Every Student Succeeds Act. California has drawn up a draft plan, education plan, that every state is required to draw up under the terms of this new federal law. And uh, California is going to submit its plan, I believe, next month. And uh, the plan has come under some criticism this week. John, what, you wrote about this, and uh, what, what was the issue here? Yeah, the criticism mainly its faces from student advocacy organizations within California. And, and this week, an organization called Bellwether Education Partners, it's a nonprofit, national nonprofit, it's been evaluating all the state plans, the 17 that were submitted in the spring. And so it decided to take a look at California's plan and also New York, since they're the two biggest states. Even though California is not in its final form. That's yet. right. It's a draft. Although the draft that it looked at, which was published uh, this month, will probably be very similar to, okay. to the one. So they decided to take a look at it. And they gave low ratings in a number of aspects, and they looked at the school accountability portion of the Every Student Succeeds Act. How are you going to identify your lowest performing schools? How are you going to take steps to improve? How are you going to measure the improvement? But particularly focused on the 5%. The lowest 5%. Yeah, yeah. focus on those, spend some money, direct some money, Title I money for poor kids on those schools. So what it said was, and we've discussed this before, that the, that the student dashboard, you know, that school California dash school dashboard with that colored coding of various on various measures. Exactly, such as uh, graduation rates and student test scores, and it measures each one by five colors and grades them. California's chosen not to do a so-called summative rating, like a letter for a school or a number, one composite number. They're treating each one of these indicators of performance separately and giving them different color. So... Bellwether Partners has questions about whether you can use this dashboard, so to speak, as a way to identify schools and as a way to measure progress. And it is difficult, no question about it. So they gave it low ratings on that. And there were some other technical aspects that it gave the uh, state low rating while also giving credit to its ambitious standards and its uh, use of assessments and its college and career readiness goals. It said, you know, it's a work in progress, which in fact the state board has said too. The state board's reaction to that was, hey, look, this is just an application for federal funding. We're doing a lot as a state in terms of the funding formula, the local control funding formula, and also the local control accountability plans that every district has to do. And even within the law, ESSA, we, we're doing other things that aren't part of this application. You're not sort of taking the whole totality of it. You're just looking at this. So there really is a, a, a disagreement by the board in terms of how Bellwether criticized its application, although the criticism was similar to what we've been hearing in California with regard to the application itself. Well, John, you, you, you basically just said what I was going to say. This has been an ongoing criticism of the plan. A number of advocacy organizations want the state to be more prescriptive about how they deal with these lowest 5% performing schools. But the state has been pretty clear. I mean, in the state board, they're not going to do it. They don't want to give 
more detail, more ammunition, shall we say, to the federal government to come and tell California what to do. And uh, isn't the, the basic spirit in any case, of, and, and the letter of the law of the Every Student Succeeds Act, is to push more decision-making to the states and to local school districts. And so couldn't one say that California's plan is, is consistent with that? Well, I think the problem is every state would say that, make that argument. I think you can make an argument that it's clear California has a focus on equity in terms of its funding and, and its commitment by the state board. I mean, Alabama could make the same argument. The law is clear. You must take steps to fund and improve the school. You must pay attention to subgroups of students minorities particular and identify them. So the law really requires states to do things. California's position is we're going to do the minimal because we are committed and we're showing- To the minimum in, in terms of the plan, In right? terms of just answering the plan. What they the put plan. in the plan. Exactly. Not in terms of necessarily what it does on the ground. To the con Yeah, exactly. To the contrary, we're doing a lot, but, but fulfilling the plan, one of the reasons it's unstated, but let's say, you know, the name that Shelby Nye is President Trump. They just, we don't know what the Trump administration is going to react to a lot of things. And, and California is one. California may find itself disagreeing with the Trump administration in a number of areas. And I, I, without saying it, the board, I think, says we want to be cautious about what we commit to because this might come back to bite us. So we want to focus on local control. We know what we're doing. We'll fulfill the requirements of the plan, and then we'll go about and make changes as we feel are necessary. This has been is completely consistent with what the State Board of Education has been saying all along. They don't want the tail wagging the dog. The tail here being the federal government, which only gives like 10% of California's education dollars. California's putting in 90% of the funding for schools. Why should the federal government be telling California what to do? Now, the state board has been saying all along, we're not going to ignore the federal law, but we're not going to turn ourselves into a pretzel to meet the requirements of the law. We're going to do what we need to do and, and just make sure that we are consistent with the law. And that seems to be the position that they continue to hold. That's very true. And it, what they're saying is we do want to be accountable for the federal dollars, which you're right, it's a small portion, but we want to see that those federal dollars are applied in the ways that we view and that districts view in terms of their own improvement plans. How are they using the federal dollars to meet those obligations and make it part of the plan as opposed to very distinct from that. And this, and this position that they took preceded the election, last November's election. So this would seem to be, from California's point of view, a, a smart position to have taken because now you actually have a Trump presidency, which California is at war with in many other areas, not so much over education. Uh, but I think California would prefer not to get into some fights with the Trump administration around school choice or any other aspects of education policy. Absolutely. And, and Jerry Brown is bipartisan. Bi he had fights with uh, President Obama and Arne Duncan over what he considered federal overreach under the No Child Left Behind. So he's very consistent that California has its own vision and it wants to move in that direction. At the same time, the advocacy groups are saying yes, but the Every Student Succeed Law requires certain things, and this is a way for us to hold you accountable. 
Okay, well, uh, we will be following all of this. Um, I doubt very much that the Bellwether Report is going to have much impact on California's plan, but uh, certainly gives the advocates a little more ammunition to keep on pushing their point of view. I think that's the point. They may be able to use this report in arguing to Washington that it should be stricter than, in fact, the, they might have been otherwise. We'll see. It's too soon to say. You know, another challenge that schools are facing this year is to find a good supply of bilingual teachers. They're always in demand, but often in short supply in in California, particularly now since the passage of Proposition 58 last fall, which removed the prohibition on teaching bilingual education. So this week, one of our reporters, Teresa Harrington, wrote a story about how bilingual teachers are getting special training to become bilingual teachers. And Teresa, welcome. Thank you. Hi. So so why do teachers, why do these teachers need special training? Well, a lot of teachers who are bilingual have not been teaching in bilingual classrooms for several years, and they may not be up to speed on teaching the common core in, uh, in their other language. And also just using academic language, because what a lot of people are finding is if you are a native speaker, you you may be very good at conversational Spanish or whatever language you're speaking, but you may not necessarily speak at the academic level that you need to be instructing students in the rigorous curriculum. So we should say that their district's first choice or first obvious source of potential teachers would be teachers who are bilingual and who may have taught bilingual classes in the past? Right. So if they have a bilingual authorization, um, it is possible that they have taught bilingual classes in the past. But because of, as you said, Prop 58 just recently passing, they may be out of practice. And so there are different programs that I found out about that I wrote about in my story. One was at CSU Dominguez Hills, where um, a course was taught all in Spanish. And the teacher actually brought in artists from the Los Angeles community, and she tried to really inspire the teachers by having them understand that the Spanish language could be very rich in cultural history and um, to kind of bring it alive both for the teachers so that they can bring it alive for their students. So districts are kind of adopting a two-pronged strategy. One is the immediate need for bilingual teachers and to look at your existing workforce. And what are districts doing for that? Uh, Well, actually, some districts did say that they had to hire teachers new, you know, instead of being able to draw on the teachers that they had, um, because they they have to entice their teachers back into bilingual classrooms that are not necessarily, they can't necessarily assume that they're going to want to go back into a bilingual classroom. Um, And also, there's a program that I found out that the state is actually helping to support at UC Davis, which um, is working very closely with the LA school district. And they were really talking about academic language and having teachers model the way that they think about things that they're reading, such as reading a passage and then saying out loud, well, this is what I notice and this is what I'm wondering, and then getting the students to use those types of questions themselves when they're reading their passages and then trying to explain what they're understanding from what they're reading. So the other strategy is to start preparing teachers with bilingual certifications. Talk a little bit about that, too. Right. And actually, I found out through doing this research that uh, CSU Dominguez Hills is one of several community colleges throughout the state, or actually CSUs, 
that um, has received a $250,000 grant from the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing to create a four-year program where teachers can get their teaching certificate, they can get their bilingual authorization as well, uh, as well as their bachelor's degree. And so there are several programs like this going on throughout the state, not only in Spanish, but there was a program that she was telling me about for um, Asian language speakers as well. Yeah, we assume always because there's so many Spanish speakers in California, but there are other, there'll be other certification programs for bilingual teachers too. Right. She was mentioning CSU Long Beach and I think CSU LA. Teresa, I just wanted to jump in here. To what extent do you think these efforts are going to actually deal with a shortage of bilingual teachers? Will this make a substantial dent or are we just scratching the surface, do you think? Well, that's a very good question. And I actually didn't interview anyone from the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing to, to help answer that question. But I did think it was interesting that they are creating these programs and they're funding these programs. And they're, of course, the state, which I wrote about, is also giving $5 million towards teacher preparation programs. So there definitely is a recognition that there's a need for these programs. And hopefully, as you know, universities such as CSU Dominguez Hills respond, as long as they can recruit the students to fill the classes, I think it could help, definitely. Well, that's certainly encouraging because I think one of the things people have hoped for is that as the door opens to bilingual programs, there will be a response. The marketplace out there, such as it is, will respond. And of course, there is this really bizarre situation in a state with so many bilingual speakers out there in multiple languages that California should have a shortage of bilingual teachers. So really, it's untapping this incredible resource base that we have and using this immigrant population Mm -hmm. that we have and so many native speakers in other languages. Yeah, I also wanted to mention there are programs to um, help instructional assistants who are bilingual to become teachers. And they're also trying to reach down into career pathways in high schools, looking for bilingual students who want to become teachers. Yeah, really interesting. Well, thank you, Teresa Harrington. Thank you. Okay, so Lewis, let's wrap it up with a prediction for the week? Well, one of the big things coming up during the coming week is on Tuesday, the latest round of Smarter Balanced test scores are coming out in English and math. This is the third set of test scores. Last year, we saw a bit of an increase over the previous years, and I think we're going to continue in that direction. Well, I guess I'm happy to be a contrarian, so I'll say that the scores are going to be pretty flat. Why do you say that? I just, last year, you always get a a, what a sophomore bump! <laughs> so this year, I'd be curious. I'd be interested if they did rise. I just think it's going to be flat, and there'll be a lot of talk about what should scores be after three years and well into the local control funding formula. So that's framework for anticipation of these scores. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Well, next I week. think the teachers are better prepared. They're going to be more on top of the Common Core standards, and I think that. All it has to filter down into the classroom. But we'll find out I next hope Tuesday. you're right. <laughs> okay. Well, John, that just about wraps it up for this week. I want to thank you once again for listening. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. I'm here with John Fenswald, our producer, Sarah Tan. Thanks for listening. See you next week. See you next week.